You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll find out the best way to treat scorpion stings. In the hot, hot, hot months, yes, May, June and October, we get thousands of victims. The state of medicine in Iraq. We have this program to, to rebuild the primary health care. And how the BMJ has shown that the link between MMR and autism wasn't bad science, it was fraud. What we have found is that the 12 cases that were summarised in the Lancet report in 1998 were falsified in that when you compare what was published in the Lancet with what is actually in those 12 children's medical records, there are a large number of discrepancies. And those discrepancies all lead to the implication that there was a link between autism and MMR vaccine. But before all that, I'm joined by David Payne, BMJ.com's editor, Who's here with his pick of the week? Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. Well, you, you've already mentioned the autism story that we've got in the BMJ this week, and I know that Fiona Godley, the editor of the BMJ, talks later in the programme about that. Obviously, the stories went live um, in the last couple of days. Um, there's an editor's choice. There's a feature by Brian Deere, who um, first um, reported on the um, on the issue when the paper was first published in The Lancet in 1998. And there's an editorial as well by Fiona um, Jane Smith, the deputy editor, and Harvey Markovich, who's an associate editor. So obviously, when these stories go live, we do get comments in. So I thought I'd highlight some of the things that have been said so far. Sure. So uh, what have the comments been like? There's been quite a lot of journalists actually commenting on the stories. So it'd be quite good to, over the course of the weekend and next week, and as more of Brian's articles are published about this issue, that we get sort of more medical opinion there. But um, just an interesting array of, um, of views, really. I'll start with a sort of glory ground, which basically says the BMJ is to be congratulated on publishing Brian Deere's articles on Wakefield. Although the original study was long been discredited, it's essential to publish all the facts so as to regain the confidence of the public in biomedical research. Sadly, the new revelations are unlikely to shake the misplaced confidence in Wakefield or those families struggling with autism, nor diminish the industry of bogus therapies claiming to cure autism. So, um, Yeah, and who was that from? That was from um, Jan Witkortsky, who's a scientist based at the Banbury Centre in New York, in the USA. Interestingly, th- this story's been picked up, I think, more in the US than, than in the UK. Yeah. There was a blog that you sent me a link to, Duncan, which was by um, the CNN reporter. Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper, yes, which includes an interview with uh, Andrew Wakefield, which is very interesting to, to see as well. Yeah. On the subject of videos, I also um, looked at one we published, I think, uh, about a year ago, which was before the end of the GMC hearing, um, um, involving Andrew Wakefield, which was an interview with um, Ben Goldacre, um, author of Bad Science and the Guardian column Bad Science, where he talked about uh, the emotional narrative that was the case um, of this story and why it got so much media attention. The fact that Wakefield is wrong, but perhaps interestingly wrong. And as you said in your introduction, you know, it's not just about um, the, the, the bad science, but also about the, um, you know, the, the, the fraud um, dimension to this now. So, so that's quite interesting, I think, to have watched that in retrospect. And you can find that video on bmj.com forward slash video. Um, it's called Vaccine Disputes, Wakefield and the MMR Crisis. Great. Well, thanks very much, David. Thank you. And you can read all those rapid responses as well as this week's news and see the poll results online on bmj.com. Now, this week on bmj.com, we published a somewhat unusual paper. The topic might not seem to have a natural home in a general medical journal, but the results and the way the research was carried out convinced our team that it was worth publishing in the BMJ. Scorpion stings might not present the NHS very much, but in rural India, they're a big problem. Doctors Bawaskar and Bawaskar have carried out an RCT comparing treatment with Prazosin, which is the established treatment, 
with a combination of prazosin and scorpion antivenom, which has recently become available. They found that the combination of prazosin and antivenom is considerably more efficacious than prazosin alone. What's more remarkable is that the trial has been done on a shoestring budget in a rural medical centre, with the doctors buying the antivenom for the treatment themselves, as no one else was going to fund or carry out the research. Earlier this week, I was joined by Dr. Boaska to find out a bit more about his study. Dr. Boaska, thanks for joining us. Why was it you decided to take on this study yourself? You see, because I am a son of a poor, illiterate farmers. I, I got experience in my, uh, my student life. I got a scorpion sting. When I joined the primary health center, there were many cases and dead due to scorpion, which has stimulated me to go ahead, go ahead for this research. Because in 1976, when I joined the primary center, there was no remedy. And the, all the victims which come with autonomic stuff used to die. How many people who are stung are able to actually get treatment in time? Now, in the hot, hot, hot months, yes, May, June and October, we get thousands of victims. Each and every period after uh, the hospital daily get 10 to 20 patients. Out of which, 2 to 3 percent, uh, four, uh, 2 to 3 patients have become serious. How easily obtained is scorpion antivenom? Now, the antivenom is prepared in the Hopkins Institute, Bombay. But the problem uh, is that is not easily available all over the shop. It, uh, it is to be purchased by going to the Bombay itself. And we, we need a prescription of a doctor, competent doctor. And most probably it is not easily available or freely available. Now, the, I am requesting the government of India that it should be available freely and easily to the private as well as the government hospitals. What would you say to other Indian doctors about treating scorpion stings now? Now, antivenom is available since last six, year, six years. Yep. And this trial was performed just to know whether antivenom will help. And the recent trial has proved that an addition of antivenom recovery is very faster as compared to prazosin alone. And this problem is because scorpion is the same all over the India. Now this paper will help we enlighten the other workers in uh, other states of India that scorpion antivenom can be used properly and the mortality, morbidity can be reduced. And that research paper is available for free on bmj.com. Now, last month in the BMJ office, we were joined by the editor of the Iraqi Medical Journal, Fiona Godley talked to him about medicine in his country. Hello, I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Shakir Mohammed, who's a chess physician in Iraq, visiting the BMJ. He also works on the Iraqi Medical Journal. And I'm really interested to understand how the health system is functioning in Iraq at the moment. Can I then ask, Shakir, about your sense of the current state of primary care provision in Iraq? If you're a young family in Iraq, you have young children, where, where do you go for your immediate medical needs? The presence of a primary health care in Iraq uh, is not new, but it is not active system. Because in Iraq, the two systems working, uh, the hospitals and the private sector. But the major burden is on the uh, governmental hospitals. So the primary health center usually bypassed uh, 
Recently, Iraqi Ministry of Health pay good attention to this and try to amend the faults in the system. We have this program to, to rebuild the primary health care because when a patient bypassing the health centers, probably there is some fault that enforce him to go directly to the hospital. Lack of uh, certain facilities or lack of experienced personnel working in the uh, primary health care. So we want to do a lot of work in order to enhance the standard of uh, medical personnel and also provided in instruments and uh, any other uh, needs. As a young trainee doctor, would someone want to go into primary care in Iraq at the moment or would they tend always to want to go into hospital medicine? Uh, actually, hospital medicine. Because the GP in Iraq is uh, different from the uh, what is uh, here and other countries, a large sector of Iraqi doctors go to have uh, one specialty. Those who fail to attain any of these will say uh, they are GP. Mm. Uh, so this makes them not very uh, well qualified. Recently, of course, uh, a family medicine is started in, in Iraq. So we, we would like to increase the incentives to the GPs in order to elevate their standards. Is there a challenge, as in some countries, to retain doctors in Iraq? Has there been a problem of, of Iraqi doctors leaving the country and not coming back? Uh, sure, this is a, a big problem because definitely doctors, as others, try to have a good life and settled one. Iraq is still uh, things fluctuating, but this, in order to be prevented, uh, we have to uh, raise the standard of uh, doctors. We have to open channels for Iraqi doctors to attach. Actually, by uh, closing the doors, we will deprive others from being attached and having their experience. Actually, we are in need for this experience. Probably, uh, there should be certain regulations, but uh, we, we have to open the doors. What about the role of nurses in Iraq? Certainly, as you'll know, in the UK and other countries, there is a move to push certain roles onto nurses in order to free up doctors. A lot of health systems are finding that investing in nurses has helped. What is Iraq doing? Yes, I think this is the bigger problem in Iraq uh, because the uh, nursing system did not uh, receive what he deserved during the uh, probably tens of years. The attention was to the doctors, and they believed that doctors can do everything. Uh, and we have in this program, beside improving the primary health care, a system of cooperation between Iraqi nurse uh, authorities and uh, the Royal College of Nursing in UK. We try to start uh, and put our uh, feet on the first step. Iraq is an evolving state at the moment, and um, I know that in many countries corruption is a problem, and even in the UK, well certainly in the UK, we have issues. What is your sense of the level of corruption within healthcare in Iraq? It's a, it's a big question to ask you, but I just wondered how you feel. One cannot deny the presence of corruption here and there, but we have in a difficult situation. The ministries and the governments in general try to strengthen rules and 
put more routine in order to overcome the process of corruption. And this, yes, it can help, but it add a lot of obstacles against the quality of training, for example. When we uh, have a contract, they want their money in order to provide their uh, care. We have a long system of signatures, involvement of many heads in order to combat corruption. I don't know which uh, should be how... The, the balance. We, how to yeah, the balance. how to get the uh, exact balance in order to uh, have good results from the side and minimize or eliminate corruption. And finally, if you're in the UK, you may be forgiven for missing a story published in the BMJ this week. Even though it garnered lots of attention abroad, it's only been reported in one British paper. That story is Brian Deer's report that David talked about earlier. Yesterday, I grabbed Fiona between one of her many TV interviews to answer a few questions, and I started by asking for a quick summary of what that story was all about. What we have found is that the 12 cases that were summarised in the Lancet report in 1998 were falsified in that when you compare what was published in The Lancet with what is actually in those 12 children's medical records, there are a large number of discrepancies. And those discrepancies all lead to the implication that there was a link between autism and MMR vaccine. Sure. Now, you're unequivocal in your in your editor's choice saying you know that this is scientific fraud. It's kind of an unusual step for a medical journal to do that. I've had to look through our records and I can't see that the BMJ's done this kind of thing before. Why was it you decided that the BMJ should publish these articles by Brian? It's been a a very um, interesting and difficult at times um, set of decisions to make. I had a conversation with Brian Deere um, in, uh, earlier last year, just after the Lancet retracted the Wakefield paper, and I was surprised to, dis- to discover that there was really quite a lot more to be said about the paper and about the circumstances um, surrounding the research. And these were uh, stories that Brian Deere had investigated, and therefore they were his stories. It wasn't something that I could uh, take and the BMJ could get up someone else to write or uh, someone else to, to check up. So I thought that the only really sensible thing to do was to ask Brian to write down what he knew um, and to, to, to make that as clear as possible to readers. Obviously, we had it extensively checked, um, both legally and editorially, and the facts checked against the six million word GMC transcript, which was published just recently, which has allowed us to um, check against the children's medical records, which are anonymous, but they are in the public domain. So we've been through quite a long process of of checking and and ensuring that this is all correct. Um, The paper itself has already been retracted, so it's not as if there is a retraction to be made. There's no uh, live institutional involvement because Wakefield himself has been Uh, suspended for some years now from the Royal Free uh, School of Medicine and is now living outside the UK without an academic appointment. So it seemed there wasn't an obvious other route and um, so we've taken the decision to publish the papers. We were also in a position where almost if we weren't to publish them we felt we would begin to be complicit really in what seems to in some ways have been at times a cover-up or at least an unwillingness of the medical establishment to acknowledge the extent of this scam. So it's been it's not been a a straightforward um, 
decision, as colleagues in the BMJ will know, we've we've agonised over it, um, and you know it it is a uncomfortable thing to have to do. But I think it's the right thing to do for science and medicine, um, and I'm very glad we've done it in the end. Yes. Um, there has been quite a lot of attention, particularly I think in the States, um, maybe just from the publication schedule, but also there the the point in that kind of MMR story that we were in the UK a couple of years ago. So what has the kind of reaction to this been? I think the reaction has been very interesting. The fact that the UK media has really not picked it up at all. I think there's a small star story in the Telegraph. None of the other broadsheets or, or tabloids have picked it up. Um, there may be other stories that are more, seem more important, um, but I think they've had legal concerns, um, uh, which I think are unjustified. Um, and also, some people have the BBC. I gather feels that this, the MMR story is old news. I think this is new news. I think this is something that is important for us to understand. The study is fraudulent and really is finally discredited. Interestingly, the American media has been very interested. Um, they, as you say, they may be in a different stage in their MMR cycle, MMR scare cycle, um, but there's no doubt that they see this as important news and um, have covered it really quite extensively, both in the press and in the uh, television media. Al Jazeera has covered it um, and other other national Canada and um, Norway and around the world. So I think the UK response is rather atypical and quite an interesting one. Mm. Um, this is the first of three pieces that we're going to run from Brian. Can you give us a sort of quick idea of what might be coming up in the future? The uh, second article looks at the commercial schemes that Andrew Wakefield um, set up, uh, which were aimed at capitalising on the MMR scare in a number of different ways. And these were based at the Royal Free Medical School and involved people at the Royal Free Medical School, but also other people outside. Um, so that's a, a really a story that, that explains to some extent the motivation behind this fraud. Um, and the third article is looking at what happened when Brian Deere first raised concerns about the paper in 2004 and um, really speaks to the question of why it's taken this long for this uh, issue to be explained and and finally got to the bottom of. And those will be in subsequent weeks in the BMJ? That's right. We're going to press release those over the next two weeks and publish them online and in print over the next two weeks. That's all for this week. Next week, Brian Deere will join us in the studio and we'll find out a bit more about how this seven-year investigation took shape. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.